delight to open up God's word. Before we do that, I, um, I don't want to miss the opportunity to say something about uh, something that happened this week. Um, this past week, we um, had the breaking news that someone uh, near and dear to many of our hearts uh, who had been influential in our faith stories had died at the age of 99 years old. His name? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Most recognizable name uh, in connection with preaching and evangelicalism in the 20th century, bar none. And um, one of the dangers of a moment like now is to say things that will put Billy Graham on too high of a pedestal. And you get safer to pay tribute to someone once their life is complete. Um, but it's appropriate for us to be thankful for the life and the ministry of Billy Graham. He was the most influential evangelical we've known for sure. And his simple message of the gospel combined with a remarkable life of integrity is a legacy worth admiring. It's something that I aspire to myself. Many of you uh, have seen pictures of people at Billy Graham crusades. It's a little bit out of date today. We don't really call things crusades. It sounds really aggressive. Uh, but a, a Billy Graham crusade uh, around the world throughout the ages, you've seen the stadiums filled with people earnestly hearing the gospel, hearing, called uh, by Jesus in the moment of his preaching. And many of you in your families have friends, family members who themselves uh, came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of Billy Graham's preaching. Not his gospel, God's gospel, preached through Billy Graham. And um, I, I certainly have that story myself. I've shared with this church before um, that in 1945, May 12, 1945, Billy Graham came to Indiana Harbor to a little uh, part of, of, it's now East Chicago, and he came to Washington High School. It's not even there anymore, right? It's like East Chicago High School, I think. And, uh, and, and Billy Graham came. Uh, he wasn't even supposed to be the preacher that day, but he showed up because the guy that was supposed to be there was like in charge of this big thing, thought that Billy Graham needed a few more preaching opportunities. So he sent him to learn how to preach. I'm grateful for that because my grandfather, Warren, was in attendance that day as a 16-year-old high school kid who was there just to pass out the bulletins, just to be the guy that would help people find seats and pass out bulletins. Well, it turns out not a lot of people came. And uh, there was a three-day experience that was supposed to, he was going to preach there for three consecutive evenings, and my grandpa was there the first night. And, and years later, he would find out that Billy, Billy Graham was very disappointed in this particular event because not a lot of people came. Um, and in fact, it was undiscernible whether anybody got saved except for uh, the fact that my grandfather, being a 16-year-old boy who had grown up in church, uh, had heard the gospel for the first time in a way that it hit his heart, and, and, and he gave his life, standing at the back of the, of the gymnasium, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ that day, May 12, 1945, uh, Billy Graham preaching. My grandfather, yeah, you, yeah, sure, that's a cool story. I should really be the one applauding. That's, you know, how that goes. But um, my grandfather uh, would go on to study in ministry, and he got a job actually working for Youth for Christ, which is Billy Graham's organization. And he became friends with Billy Graham. And my grandpa has this uh, hilarious story of actually leaving Billy Graham at a gas station that he tells every once in a while, and he thinks it's so funny. And I'm like, Grandpa, you've left Billy Graham at a gas station. How could you? He doesn't see it our way. Um, but my grandfather was able to, to spend a lot of time working with him and to, to learn from him and to, to be friends with him. My grandfather had his own kids, my mom being one of them, and my grandfather would preach and he would pastor and he would parent. And that's 
how he passed along his faith to my mom. And my mom, sometimes it felt like she preached, and sometimes it felt like she pastored, and she did a lot of parenting in my life. And I remember uh, the day that I prayed to receive Jesus into my life with my mom. And uh, my story of coming to faith in Jesus goes all the way back to May 12, 1945, when a young Billy Graham was obedient to Jesus and preached the gospel in uh, East Chicago, Indiana. And, and I just say that not as a way to like connect myself into Billy Graham's story, but to say a lot of us, if you could get back in Ancestry.com and like the spiritual Ancestry.com, which is my new Shark Tank idea, but if you could get back into, I'm saying that so you won't steal it, if you, if you could do that, you would find somewhere a Billy Graham fingerprint. Like, like the, the, the stone that was thrown into the pond that is Billy Graham sent out ripples across evangelicalism to the point where I'd argue to say a lot of us have been influenced by his life. And that's just a little biography on uh, Billy Graham. It's a, it's a little biography. He, he, he's a pastor. He, he did very well. And um, we're thankful to God for his um, preaching and, the, and his ministry across the world. Um, Billy Graham wrote an autobiography, which is better than the biography. It's an autobiography. If you go on Amazon.com, you can see that it's somewhere around 800 pages long. It's the war and peace of all biographies. And I think it's why we praise God for Billy Graham, but we also thank God for Audible.com, which means you can read that book or hear that book for just 10 bucks. It's a good, it's a good thing. One of the great things about autobiographies is that I can share with you as much about Billy Graham as I know about him or as I've been impacted by him, but an autobiography gets into the mind of somebody who uh, wants to convey who they were, what they're about, their mission that they're on, not just someone else's interpretation of it. And you can read uh, Billy Graham's autobiography. It's fascinating. Look at some of his doubts and struggles and the, the, the ways that uh, Christians were awful to him and pastors were awful to him and yet how God blessed him in the midst of it all. And... Um, Today, the, the book of Romans, you go, Dan, what does this have to do with the Apostle Paul? That's a great question. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15 show us another Christian who I, I would say is more influential than Billy Graham. And we actually have his autobiography held within these eight verses right here. This is an autobiographical sketch of the inner thoughts, the prayers, and the desires of the Apostle Paul's heart. And so I want to read this, the whole thing together, and then we're going to break it down into a couple of sections. Read with me Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Paul says this. He says, first, and now I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do the thing where pastors say, like, let's read the whole thing, and then I stop on a word. First. And what's interesting is you could, you could drive yourself nuts if you try to find the word second in the book of Romans. Paul doesn't actually give it to this. He says, first, and then he goes on. You have any, like, relatives who tell stories like that? Where they're like, well, the first thing you gotta know, and then there's no second, third, fourth, fifth. That's Romans. This is the first, everything else is still first, okay? So just to put that out there, unless you are like type A and you gotta connect all the dots, you won't. So first, or I think really what he's trying to say is in the first place, um, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because, of your, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, who I'm served with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented. 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For most of Romans, Paul refrains from referencing himself at all. He generally uses language that's inclusive. Romans 5, we'll get there, but Romans 5, 1 comes to mind. He says, um, uh, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Paul typically includes himself in the uh, narrative. He doesn't make himself the subject of what he's talking about too often, except for right here. He gives us a glimpse into what's going on in his heart. And the bookends of Romans, the, the first part of the chapter, first part of chapter one and the last part of chapter 15, Paul talks about himself. And we should certainly be grateful for that. And here's why. It's because um, no matter who you are or how old you think you are, you've never met an apostle, have you? I've never met an apostle. Um, that, that would be tremendous feat of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, hopping into the time machine, going all the way back to the days of Paul. But here, Paul gives us a glimpse into what made him tick, who he was as a person, what, what drove him. And it's good for us to recognize what the Apostle Paul was like because mature Christians among us probably realize how influential being around other great Christians can be. You're inspired by their example. You're humbled by their humility. You are challenged by their passion for God. One of the best ways to grow as a Christian is to get personal time with someone else who is a Christian who's a little bit, we, we say, further down the line, further down the road than we are. And I think about how my spiritual life has been blessed by being around men and women who are just like this, who, who, who are passionate after Jesus, who, who love Jesus, and by watching them follow Jesus, I can learn how to follow Jesus. You, you see what I'm saying? And this is Paul, the greatest convert to Christianity in the first century, whose lives and writings are all about Christian maturity, showing us what it looks like to be a mature Christian, what a mature Christian uh, thinks about, what a mature Christian prays about, what a mature Christian dreams about and desires. And that's actually going to be the outline for how we tackle this today. We see here Paul's example for us and how he thinks and how he prays and how he desires. We see his example as an inspiration for our own lives. So in the first place, um, how does a godly Christian think? Paul says it this way, Romans uh, 1 verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Right away, we see Paul's mind is set with thinking that is marked by thanksgiving. Thinking that is marked by thanksgiving. This may seem obvious, um, but what does it mean to be thankful or to give thanks? I'm going to let you think about that for a second because it's been a while since we've had Thanksgiving, the holiday. And often this is the first attitude in our hearts that sort of disappears come February. Thanksgiving, it's a recognition and appreciation for someone or something which we're grateful. The opposite of thankfulness is not um, simply in gratitude, but rather thoughtlessness. To simply not think about the gift of this thing or this person or this family is in my life that God has given to bless us and bless those around us. 
This is why at our dinner tables on Thanksgiving, we actually take time to intentionally say out loud the things that we're thankful for. Because by saying them out loud, it shows that we put thought behind this. We're recognizing you can't be thankful if you're thoughtless. To, to say thanks to someone requires you are thinking about them. And Paul says, I, my mind, I'm thinking about you, the Romans, and who I, I don't even know you. I've never met you. But I've heard all about you. And I'm thankful for you. Paul gives us an example of how thankfulness should work in us. He says that he thanks God through Jesus Christ, which means that Christian thanksgiving is a vertical endeavor. It sees every good and perfect gift as coming down from the Father, as James says in James 1 verse 5. Paul says he doesn't thank the Romans for being the Romans. He thanks God for what he's doing in the Romans. And Christian thanksgiving is first vertically thankful for something or someone that God is working in. And notice specifically, look at verse 8 again. Notice specifically what, what Paul rejoices in in the Roman Christian's faith, which he describes as being proclaimed in all the world. And this expression's a bit over the top. Not everyone knew of the faith of the Roman church, but apparently this church was very well known for the quality of their faith in Christian lives. If we remember last week back to verse 5, Paul's mission was set forth this way. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And then and here's his mission. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul viewed his apostleship as a call to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of God's name among all the nations. The obedience of faith. Genuine saving faith displays itself in a transformed life of obedience. This is super significant because obedience doesn't produce faith. Did you hear me? Obedience does not produce faith. We would call that works-based righteousness. Millions are trying to gain faith through obedience today just by going to church, hoping that their obedience will result in some honorable faith. But um, what Paul says is that saving faith is a gift from God which produces obedience. It's the other way around. We are um, not people who have to have all of our questions answered to come to faith. We are actually people who have faith who are seeking understanding. We are people who have faith who are seeking to live out that faith in a way that is obedient to the calling that we have. We, we have changed lives. And this was Paul's mission statement that he would have put on his letterhead to the Church of the Romans. He would have, have put this on the wall of his corporate office. This is the mantra that his fellow missionaries would have repeated. This is literally the book that he wrote, that he would bring true faith to the nations of the earth for the sake of God's glorious name. And Paul hears that this is happening in the Roman church. He hears that somewhere where he's never been, his mission to, to bring about the obedience of faith to the glory of the name of Jesus, to all the nations, is happening in a place that he's never been. And he, in his mind and his heart, is so encouraged by the activity of God in the hearts of the Romans that he says, I thank my God for your faith, which I hear is resounding all throughout the world. And, and the reason I break all this down is because um, Paul hears this is happening and he rejoices in God's salvation. His thinking is marked by thanksgiving that God was up to something. And, and here's why I say all that. It's because if you think like an apostle, you will think like an apostle. 
And I bet if I asked, you know, went around the room today, kind of had a moment, and it'd be way too long, but asked you all, like, hey, are you thankful today for anything? You'd all be able to say, like, well, of course I'm thankful. Of course. We're, we're, we got a lot to be thankful for. And I asked you, well, what are you thankful for? Many of our answers would be basically the same thing as those who actually don't have faith in Jesus. We can say, well, I'm thankful for my job. I'm thankful for my home. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful that when I come to Bethel Church, you have lots of coffee. All of these things are wonderful things, particularly the coffee. We should be thankful for that. But any human being is naturally grateful for these things. Instead, a mature Christian, mature Christian thanksgiving, it goes beyond those to indicators of God's grace and gospel at work in the lives of other people. True Christian mature thanksgiving recognizes when God is at work in the life of someone else. We were joking about this as a bunch of uh, pastors this week, and Pastor Steve kind of blurted out to some of us who were working on this message. He goes, you know, um, notice that Paul doesn't say, like, I'm thankful to hear that the Roman soccer team is having a good season. And I'm thankful to hear that the Roman stock market is up. And great news, guys, I'm thankful to hear that Nero is enacting political policies that I agree with. No, actually, Paul's eyes are on the kingdom of God and gospel ministry, and he says, I thank God for you because your faith is going throughout the world. We're joining each other on the same mission. See, if you think like an apostle, you will think like an apostle. And friends, I, I could waste the rest of our time here today on just what we have to be thankful for here in our church and in this community a few things come to mind. I'm really grateful that our church family is serving the spiritual needs of Gary, Indiana, and Hober, Indiana, and Portage, Indiana, and Crown Point, Indiana, and Cedar Lake, Indiana. Not just that we're like setting up shop and providing a place for people to attend on Sunday mornings, but that like real spiritual needs are being met all throughout Northwest Indiana. I thought this week about how God has allowed us to begin reaching across the nations into the Chinese community, which in years past, we would have to actually travel across an ocean to get to, and yet God has brought them here to our back door. And so much so that we can gather some in the name of Jesus as a congregation here in Northwest Indiana. God is doing that. We should be thankful for that. In a few weekends, some of you are going to be baptized right here in our services and I'm thankful for the work that God's doing in your life. Even after this, this service, a, a young lady came up to me after the service and she wanted to talk about baptism. She's gonna be baptized in a couple, a couple of days. And just to hear what God is do, doing in her heart made me be thankful. And this is what it looks like for the Apostle Paul. This is what it looks like for us as well. I, I wonder, are you thankful when you hear what God is up to in the lives of other people? If you train your mind to think with kingdom values, your heart will be thankful for them whenever they appear. And, and this is Paul's first example to us. Here's his second. You still with me? Verse nine. One person's with me. Maddie, was that you? Thank you. Allie's, okay, great. So you guys with me? Coffee's back there. Verse 10, verse nine and 10. For God is my witness. Come back to that whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul, 
invokes the witness of God who alone could know Paul's inner thoughts and prayers. That's gutsy, isn't it? Most of us, I think myself included, would be embarrassed if God was called on as a witness to the content of our prayers. But Paul here saying, God's my witness. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Paul's not talking just what he prays about or that he names them. He's talking about the frequency with which he prays. Without ceasing, you are in my prayers. This reminds us, if you've read the Bible before, of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which Paul says to the Thessalonian church, pray without ceasing. And praying without ceasing is not praying 24 hours a day, and even now you're, you're praying in the back of your mind trying to double, you know, multitask. No, no, it's instead praying without ceasing is a call to persistence in prayer. And this is Paul's example. He, he, is, he is someone who's praying marked by persistence. If Paul was here today, he would tell Bethel Church Hope reporters, hey, don't give up in prayer. Keep going. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. So this is God is my witness. I've not stopped ceasing to mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may not succeed in coming to you. Now, this is what we would call today a long-term prayer request. And I wonder if, if your life is marked by things that you've been praying for for a very long time. A lot of us try prayer for a day or maybe a minute. And when you don't pass the test and you're like, I, God hates me, you give up. When the reality is, is that even as an apostle, Paul had things on his heart and his mind that he would continually bring back to the Lord in persistent prayer, asking him, pleading with him, God, would you let me go see the Roman church? I need to get to the center of the Roman church. I need to be there to encourage the Roman church, to be encouraged by what you're doing there. Could you help me get there? And time after time, day after day, week after week, even year after year, Paul did not see God answer that prayer. And in some weird way, that's a little encouraging to us, isn't it? Even the apostle Paul had God tell him, just wait, just wait. And I wonder what's on your heart that you've been praying to God for for days, weeks, months, and years. I'm so blessed to be in a church that is very open with each other. And um, one of the things that we do here, Ruthie mentioned the the, the connect card in the seat back in front of you. On the back of that is a, a spot where you can write a prayer request. And I'm so blessed that so many people will trust us to pray for their needs and, and ask us to, to join with them in asking the Lord to move in their lives. And um, no, lately, though, I've noticed a few of you, um, I don't know if you're feeling guilty over this, but um, your prayer request begins, um, sorry to ask for this again. And I, I, I think I get that. But I just, as a pastor, want to absolve you from that guilt right now. All right, do I do this? I do this, right? I think I do that. I didn't go to that kind of school. But, but, but the point is this. You don't need to feel guilty about asking the Lord continually. And, and actually, the sign of a mature Christian is someone who returns to the same thing that's on their heart day after day, week after week. It was so encouraging for me. I was on the phone with one of our members this week, and um, she was just observing something in our campus that is a little bit of, a, of a, a deficit. And we were talking through it, and she said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna pray about this every single day until God answers that prayer. 
And um, bless her heart, she had no idea we were preaching this, and this is kind of what I'm talking about, and she was going to become a sermon illustration. Um, But I am encouraged by that attitude, that we have people in our church who take before him the needs that we have on a daily basis. And so I, I, I pray that we would be a church that would rely so heavily upon the Lord that we would have constant things that we continually ask him for. And before I move on, which I need to move on, but before I move on, I want to maybe say one, one other thing. We, we are a praying church. One of the four values that we have on our walls out here in the lobby is that we, we value scripture, but we also value prayer. That's who we are at Bethel Church. We are praying church. When we gather together in any of our environments, we will pray together. Why? Because we recognize that our lives are submitted to Jesus and we need to be talking to him. And that's why at the end of every one of our services, we have a team of people who gather together in the front of our church to pray for whatever needs you might have. And um, I understand that, you know, the idea of coming forward down an aisle to pray might ring some spiritual PTSD in your heart. And I get that. But I don't want you to leave this place if you've got a burden in your mind and heart without talking to the Lord about it. Like this of all places is a place for you to pray. This of all places is a place for you to come together with believers and to say, hey, could you pray with me for this thing? Can we ask God to work in our lives? Prayer, this is Paul's attitude, is praying marked by persistence. And I would love for the culture of our church, before you leave, if you don't feel you can come down, that you would turn to someone who sat next to you and say, hey, man, this is on my heart. Would you pray for me about this? It's such a beautiful thing. But I need to move on. The first glimpse that we see in Paul's uh, life is that he had thinking marked by thanking. The second is that he was praying marked by persistence. And here's the, here's the third attitude that he has found in verses 11 through 15 as we kind of bring this to a close. That he, he had longings marked by love, longings marked by love. Notice this. Verse 11, it says, for I long, I desire, or I want to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul says, for I long to see you. Paul's never met these people. He doesn't know them personally. And yet he's prayed for them ceaselessly and the desire of his heart is to know them and see them. And this is Christian brotherhood and love that, that, that we would have as Paul's heart, his desires are longings marked by loving. He has heard so much about their faith or obedience. Paul understands the challenges that they must face, face as being Christians who live in the epicenter of the Roman Empire ground zero, so to speak. His heart is with them and he can't wait to see them. And Paul states at least three unfulfilled longings, three things that he's persistently praying for here. Longings marked by love, it's three things. First is to see them, long to see you. The second is to bless them. And the third is to be blessed by them. The language that Paul uses here to be blessed by them is, or to bless them is to impart a spiritual gift. And whatever that gift is, we don't really know. For, for, for all intents and purposes, it's a, it's a generic encouragement that comes from being united with others who are like-minded in their pursuit of Jesus. Paul is showing us that even apostles need the refreshment that God's people uniquely provide when the grace we are giving each other 
is grace that comes from the faith level. And isn't it true that one of God's good gifts to us is the refreshment and encouragement and joy that comes by being with other like-minded Christians? Isn't it true that one of God's good gifts to us is the refreshment and encouragement and joy that comes by being with other like-minded Christians? And um, I hear someone saying, well, yeah, sure, immature Christians need other people. That's helpful. But mature Christians like me don't really need other Christians. And um, we would just point you back to Paul saying that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. See, even Paul needed this encouragement. He needed to talk about the things of faith, the things that God was doing in his life, in their lives, to be, if they had the fat, the, the Flames of faith just enraged in his heart towards passion for Jesus. Which, which I think means Paul wasn't trying to go connect with his Roman friends for a Super Bowl party. Even though there's nothing wrong with social times together. You can ask my small group. Instead, we are mutually encouraged by each other's faith. When relationships and conversations get to the spiritual level with authenticity, we are strengthened by one another. And um, if I could maybe boldly and maybe prophetically say this right now, um, I think each one of us here at our campus can take a step forward in our lives in this area of having spiritual conversations that are intentional and life-giving, that grows us in longings marked by love. I so want the culture of our campus to be one where we don't just gather on Sunday because it's Sunday and then it's Sunday and then it's Sunday and that's what we do on Sunday. I so want the culture of our campus to be one where we are growing together and loving God's work among us and sharing what he's doing together to encourage one another in the Lord. Isn't it funny how you can go hang out with your friends on Saturday night and go to bed having had a great time and wake up in the morning still feeling a little like empty? And, um, and yet... You can come to church feeling completely empty and be around people who are pursuing Jesus together and leave completely full. Isn't that crazy how that works? And that's how God designed it, that you and I might be encouraging one another, being, being, having conversations with one another, being able to share and, and, to, and to increase the passion we each have for Jesus. The problem here, I think, is that some of us never get to the spiritual level in our relationships and others of us are so emphatic on the spiritual level, you're just so amped up, no one can talk to you about anything. Everybody thinks you're so smarmy and self-righteous and judgmental for how you always bring up the Jesus thing. And here's what I'm saying. I think we need a balance of intentionality and love. Here, for us, not just in theoretical, I think at Hober Portage, we need to be more intentional and loving in the way that we do this. I'd really like to just say it this way. Be normal when you talk about spiritual things. Like, just be normal. I wrestled with whether or not I needed to train our church on how to have spiritual conversations, but I, I think a couple guidelines are helpful. So you see what I mean. Um, nobody likes the false sincerity person who, um, you know, they talk like, like if, if you're talking to me and I'm the false sincerity person, like you're asking me like, hey, Dan, how's it going? I'm great, man. Well, how's, what's God doing in your life? Well, let me just tell you what God's doing in my life. It's so amazing. Someone goes, hey, do you watch the game last night? Yeah, this is awesome. But I want, I, God has been so good. 
to me. So, so like, there's no voice you have to use when you're talking about Jesus things. Is that, is that okay? Can we just free ourselves from whatever you think you need to sound like when you talk spiritually? Just be yourself. The other thing is, like, um, don't lie. <laughs> just don't lie. <laughs> How you doing, man? Oh, dude, if I was any better, I'd be Jesus himself. <laughs> I'll have what he's having, right? Like, what in the world? See right through that. Um, I would also say this, like, don't keep your conversations about Jesus reserved for Sunday mornings only. Like, talk about your faith throughout the week. That, that's kind of the point here, is like, like, have spiritual conversations with one another that encourage your faith, that are on a faith level. And finally, maybe I just encourage you this way. Don't feel like you have to play that dang one-up game. Like someone's like, hey, I was reading my Bible this week. And you're like, well, I was reading in Leviticus every day, twice a day, the whole thing, even the names. And you laugh because you know we do this. You laugh because somehow Christian culture has become really awkward, right? We can't call it what it is. We've got this whole subculture of music and books and TV shows and all this stuff that's just like not helping us have normal conversations about what God is actually doing in our lives. So maybe, 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 this is a crazy idea, but maybe if this is a normal place with normal people who have normal conversations about extraordinary, not normal things that God's doing, we would be encouraged in our faith. In a way where, like, I don't walk away from the conversation with you thinking, like, man, that person's so full of themselves. In a way where you don't walk away from me thinking, like, man, that person just really doesn't get it, right? That we might just, in our course of our friendships, talk normally. I would pick on Adam here for a second because Adam does this so well. Uh, I'm going to pick on you. Can I pick on you? We'll edit this out for the radio or whatever. But uh, Adam, Adam speaks a language that I don't speak. He speaks, like, uh, I don't know. What do, what do you speak, dude? It doesn't honestly. Uh, but I, I talk with Adam, and I just feel like the sense of genuineness come through you, man. And uh, I, I'm hungry for that in the rest of our church, where it's just like there's no pretense here. We all for that? We got that? Um, Paul, Paul um, says that worship services aren't going to provide that. And so if you, if you want to have spiritual encouragement and, and spiritual growth, uh, it's going to take outside of worship times and relationships to build that. And I wonder if you have that. We at our church strive to provide these contexts with our small groups. We have small groups, celebrate recovery, we have Bible studies, all these ways for you to connect with other people to have conversations on a faith level that you might be encouraged. Intentionally, spiritually directed relationships that strengthen us. Even apostles need it. And then Paul's love extends beyond the Roman, the Roman Christians. He says this, he says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And if we're really honest about this, it sounds like Paul's a little bit like uh, exclusive, like a little, a little degrading in the way that he talks about people. Because like you look at those, you go like, I'm under obligation to both the Greeks, okay, and the barbarians? Barbarians. How would you like it if I was like, oh man, yeah, Don. That dude's a barbarian. <laughs> Immediately you think of a Viking 
who doesn't know how to use a wet nap with his ribs, and you're like, this guy is living in a tent and like doesn't know anything about anything. Um, likewise, uh, call people a fool on Twitter and see what happens to you. Right? And so for us in our culture today, barbarian and fool have these negative connotations, but in Paul's day, they wouldn't. Actually, what Paul is doing here is very positive. It's, it's actually showing the inclusiveness of his ministry, the inclusiveness of his ministry. Um, barbarians in this day were actually non-Greeks. It was the um, non-offensive way to talk about someone who wasn't Greek. And um, technically in this day, the barbarians were those who lived outside of the Roman Empire. Most of them were noted as living in like Crete or Spain. Spain was seen as the ends of the earth in Paul's day. That's why Paul says in his letter, I am hungry to get to you so that on my way you can send me to Spain because my mission is to preach the gospel to the very literal ends of the earth, which was the barbarians in Spain. Those non-Greek-speaking, non-Roman Empire people who also need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And likewise, he says, I want to speak to those who are both a part of high society and not a part of high society. Those who are educated and those who weren't formally educated. Why? Because the scope of God's love and salvation is incredibly inclusive. It includes the cultured and educated class found in Rome and it includes those without access to education or modern culture. It's the haves and the have-nots and everyone in between. And this is one of the main themes of Romans. It's the gospel is for everyone. Not just religious Jews, but also pagan Gentiles, as well as the people who live on the fringes of society and on the globe. And the pain that Paul feels is the pain of obligation. Almost as if he had a debt to pay. Notice he says, I am under obligation. Um, if you go to the bank and you take out a loan for a house, you're under an obligation to pay that back. Otherwise, they take your house. That's how it works. But there's another type of debt that I think Paul is talking about here, which is the, the type of debt that exists um, when, when someone asks you to do something for them. Um, like, like if I was to, uh, to ask Emerson here, like, hey, um, could you take my $1,000 and give it to Colin because I, I owe him money and I'm going to give it to you. Your debt is to give Colin my $1,000. I gave it to you to give to him. There was a purpose for me giving it to you. And so therefore, if you don't give it to him, you're robbing me and him. It's the obligation. This exists in our church. Do you know this? First Sunday of every month, we take two offerings. And uh, why do you take two offerings, Dan? That's such a greedy thing to do. Well, it could seem that way, but one of the offerings that we take is apart from our regular tithes and offerings. One of the offerings is for what we call our benevolence fund. Benevolence is the, the desire that we have as a church to not just keep money inside of our church, but to help people in need and to help people who are outside of our church. We give away uh, thousands and thousands of dollars every single year that comes in through our benevolence fund. And when you give money to our benevolence fund, you are saying, hey, give this money to the people who need it. And you trust us and you've put us in an obligation to make sure that we don't pay our own NIPSCO bill, we go pay somebody else's. You see how that works? That's the obligation that Paul's under. I'm under the obligation to who? Both to Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. What's your obligation to them? To preach the gospel. Why, why is that a debt, Paul? Well, this is how Paul means it. His ministry was a debt from Jesus. Jesus gave him the gospel, which is worth far more than money can buy, and Paul was obligated to share it with everyone that he could. And if we viewed evangelism and sharing our faith this way, we would be much more evangelistic, wouldn't we? For us, 
it isn't an obligation as much as we all kind of just see it as like, well, if, my, if an opportunity comes up for me to share my faith, I'll share my faith. If I get around to it, if somebody asks me the reason of hope that I have, I'll, I'll share with them a Bible verse. We also wonder, like, what's our church's obligation to the people of Northwest Indiana? Are we obligated or not? I wonder if you would be okay if we didn't do mission them or more and better as long as your needs were being met and your kids were being told about Jesus. Like how many of us would be totally okay going to a church as long as it was really good at ministering to us? And unfortunately, being a pastor here in North Indiana for three years now, I've observed that people move from church to church to church for the wrong reasons. Some of you have come here for the wrong reasons. And I want you to know right here, right now, that we are a church that is obligated like the Apostle Paul for the preaching of the gospel outside these walls. We, we are a church that must, in a normal way, must take seriously the call we have to share our faith. Must take seriously the call that we have that the gospel is for all people. Must take seriously the call, just like Paul saw it was his ministry. The example that we learn from him is that, that, that Jesus has given us a death that we ought to be preaching to whoever and everyone that we can. And, and may God forgive us for not acting on the debt we have to minister the gospel to the lost community around us. Here's why we looked at this morning at the autobiography of Paul's heart. It's because this. I think because in it we see God's heart and God's gospel is for all people. And it ought to change how we think in thankfulness. It ought to change how we pray with persistence. It ought to change how we long for encouragement and love that is all-inclusive. God's love truly is all-inclusive. And so much of Romans is going to be on this theme. And in one way, this is just the tip of the iceberg or the appetizer, so to speak. And what a comfort this should be for us, amen? Like, that, that God's gospel is for all people. It's all-inclusive. Why? Well, because who, who are we on this list? The Greeks? High society? No. Do you know what you are? Okay, you said it, not me. We are a non-Greek culture, non-Greek-speaking, non-Jewish, plain, old, vanilla Gentiles. That's who we are. But that's okay. Because the gospel is for us barbarians, too. And we thank God because he, in his wisdom, sent people out to preach the gospel to the corners of the earth, where America wasn't even on the map when the Bible was written. Like, there was no globe on which this continent existed in the consciousness of humanity. And yet God saw in his providence fit for his gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And in some instances, that's you and me. Like the fact that today, Paul, we're reading in Northwest Indiana, in Hobart, Indiana, um, so far from where Rome is, so far from where Jerusalem is, so far 2,000 some years away from where the apostle Paul was, the fact that we are gathering today, reading Paul's letters, understanding his heart, and being like, yes, go to the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. And so it's an encouragement for us to say, God, we're grateful that in your wisdom you've used men and women like the Apostle Paul, like Billy Graham, who understood 
that God's gospel is for everyone. Next week, we're going to carry this theme out a little further. We're going to read this summary verse for all of Romans. Paul, Paul says this. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We're going to break this down to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's gospel is for all people. As we close, I, uh, just, I heard two interesting uh, tidbits of information this past week as it recalls uh, as it accounts to Billy Graham's life. When Martin Luther King was arrested during the Birmingham civil rights protests, guess who posted bail for him to get out of jail? Billy Graham. Guess who refused to preach to segregated crowds as far back as the early 1950s, long before the civil rights movement was in full force, when most of the white evangelical churches did not want to uh, be a part of that type of uh, congregation? Billy said once, um, Christianity is not a white man's religion. Don't let anybody tell you that it's black and white. Christ belongs to all people. And I wonder if we could have gotten in the the heart and the mind of the prayers of Billy Graham, what we might have even seen that would convict us of how we think, pray, and we desire. And even better than Billy Graham here is the apostle chosen by God to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. His thanksgivings, his prayers, his longings, they're an example to us of what a godly man or woman thinks about, prays about, or cares about. So as we go today, let's, let's pray in that spirit. Would you join me?